So sin shows up in some mysterious ways, doesn't it? Things that we never expected become temptations for us that we struggle to handle. For the last seven years, I regularly have had the opportunity to teach, to preach. It started at a retirement home with six old ladies. And once a month I would go and they would sit on their couch. They actually asked me to like, they wanted to lead worship and, and they're like, we got a piano. And I was like, I know Amazing Grace. We're just going to sing that. We're going to call it a day. And I came here to teach. And so that's about all I know to do. Um, I then got the opportunity as a youth pastor in Georgia, uh, the Atlanta area, to teach regularly to students. And then for the last four and a half years, I've had the opportunity to teach you guys. What's interesting is all those groups, no matter the age, have one thing in common. They're very prone to fall asleep. (laughs) And so you're teaching your heart out, right? You've got your papers ready. You have manuscripted every word, everything. You, You think you are bringing the word of God and yet they are dozing off. See, preaching, I have learned, has become one of the biggest temptations for me. To focus on myself and my greatness. It's been one of the biggest temptations to show off how smart, how funny, how competent, how good I am, how godly I can pretend to be. Uh, Preaching has become a temptation for me to be better than your youth pastor or your pastor at home or the person across the town. Or maybe why are they not coming to our church because I'm not good enough or I'm better than them. Preaching has become one of the biggest temptations for me to handle uh, every single week. And I told y'all, I think, last uh, spring, if you were with us, that I'm an affirmation whore. Like, I so desire affirmation. You know what's not good for an affirmation whore? To get up in front of people and preach to them every week. Because and it's funny because in a lot of ways, God's humbled me by putting me in college ministry and youth ministry because you guys don't like the old ladies just come up to me afterwards every time and go, oh, that was such a good message. <laughs> right. Like you, you guys just kind of like go and laugh and eat a brownie. And, <laughs> and, and I'm like here going, oh, cool. Yeah. That was fun, guys. Uh, even last night. As we finished, I came and I sat, and I go, was that enough? Was that good enough, God? Was that great enough message? I I have this opportunity, and there's so much pressure on a fall retreat message. It has to be better than a Sunday morning. I've got to write better. I've got to say better. I've got to be more polished, more funny, more deep. And that's not even grammatically correct. And I, I worry about all of these things. And it becomes such a temptation for me. This is who I am. And then I was reading in my Bible on May 28th. It's actually my anniversary, so that was cool when I found it. (laughs) And I was reading back in my journal. And I was reading John 12. And we're going to throw it up on the screen. John 12, verses 42 and 43. Jesus has been teaching, but then he also just says, 
hey, there's a lot of people after all of this teaching, after all that I've done, there's a lot of people that have rejected me. Starting in verse 36, he talks about all the unbelief. They saw all of these things. Verse 37 says he had done so many signs before them and they still did not believe him. But then this was the hard verses, 42 and 43. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So they would not be put out of the synagogue for fear of what others would think, for fear of what others would say, for fear of what this would mean, for fear of what it would cost them. They were unwilling to say what they believed and then get verse 43. I think it's going to slap you. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. I wrote in my journal that day. I showed Jacob this on Thursday. I wrote at the end of that journal entry, do I desire to impress people? Because I'm just, that's in me, right? But do I desire to impress people with my godly gifts or my godliness? Do I desire greatness Or godliness? Who or whose affirmation am I seeking above everything? Whose good job? Whose attaboy? Whose pat on the back do I really want? Because I have preached way too many messages. Just hoping to impress the crowd. Not the one I've spoke about. Do I desire the praise of men or the praise of God? For you students, do you desire greatness or glory or uh, godliness? It's a tough issue. See, because when I preach, I have to challenge myself, what is my aim? When you serve, what is your goal? When you open your Bible, uh, who are you trying to impress? What is your motive behind that even? When you answer a question in small group, what's your intention? Do you want to impress with your greatness? How much Bible you know? How well you are to convey that thought? How good you are at speaking? Or is godliness the root of how you are responding? I struggle tremendously with this. When I wrote that question down, do I prefer... Greatness or godliness, it took me weeks to wrestle through that. That became a daily prayer. What do I prefer, God, because I know deep down what I want? Will you break me of my desire for the glory that comes from man and not the glory that comes from God? So last night we talked about greatness. It's creating uh, heaven on earth. Right? It's our pursuit to create heaven on earth in a place that is broken and never can live up to what God has in store. We are trying with all our might to create it here. Tonight, I'm going to urge you to stop trying to be great and start trying to be godly. Will you stop trying to be great and start being godly?
Being godly terrifies me because I put my worth in title or position or salary or approval or all of these other fleeting and inconsequential things. I put my worth in what others think of me, not am I pleasing my God. I may be the only one, but I don't think I am. I'm terrified by the idea of pursuing godliness because I think my retirement, what I want to do in it, is going to maybe disappear. My resume will suffer. My chance to to do this big and highly thought of job may diminish. My fame, my name, my renown may be minimized. I may not make the history book. My name may not be made great. The real questions I'm asking is this. Will my life matter? Will I make a difference? The real question is, will I do enough? If I stop trying to be great, will it be enough? So tonight we're going to talk about the idea of godliness. We started with greatness. Now let's look at godliness. The best way I know to understand the meaning or the definition of godliness is to start with what it's not. So ungodliness, and I didn't put a lot on the screen, son. I'm sorry. Uh, Ungodliness defined this way. It's a great definition by Jerry Bridges. He says, living one's life with little or no thought of God. Living one's life with little or no thought of God. Of his will, his glory, or even my dependence on him. I'm living my life with little or no thought of God about His will, His glory, or my dependence upon Him. To shorten it, here's what I say. Ungodliness is not needing nor desiring God. I was explaining to Carlin this idea, and I said, you know, ungodliness, it's weird because we think of it as just this terrible thing, but really it's not a terrible person. It's just somebody that that lives their day... Just going, I don't really need God. I can I can take care of this myself. I can handle all of my own dreams. And as I was, we were sitting on our bed, and I told Carl, I said, yeah, so I'm going to be teaching about this at Far Retreat. I said, ungodliness is just little or no thought of God. And she stopped me. She said, Jordan, that is my sin. That is the thing that I wrestle with. You put into words, not me, Jerry Bridges, Put into words what I've never been able to describe. Because I, I'm not this vile, terrible adulterer. I'm not this person addicted to this substance. I, I'm not just like this awful slanderer or gossip. That I can do all of those things. Well, the gossip and slandering part. Like, I do some of those things, but, but that's not like, I don't just feel all the time just bad. But she said, that's me. Little or no thought of God. And see, most of you wouldn't think of Carlin as a terrible and vile person, right? I mean, the Calvinist in here would say, well, absolutely she is. <laughs> but, but the ungodliness, she says, this is me. I am little or no thought to who God is or what he wants to do. And here's the deal. 
Ungodly people can live good lives. Ungodly people can use their godly gifts. Ungodly people are religious, even. We have accepted ungodly people into our churches, and we tell them they're doing great. But godliness is this. It is devotion to God that leads to living a pleasing life. Okay? We're going to unpack that. Godliness is devotion to God that leads to a life pleasing to God. It's a love that changes how I live. Now, I want to make sure we understand. Godliness is not a way to earn our salvation. We read in Ephesians 2, I hope on that question you said, I play no part in my own salvation, but only because God chose to love me, that He loved me first, and that He gave His mercy when I didn't deserve it one bit to me. Godliness starts in a love for God. Not to earn favor or to earn His love, but from response to His love. It doesn't save us, but it does cause us to please God in how we live. Ephesians, I mean Ephesians. Exodus and Leviticus will talk about the sacrifices to God, right? They would kill a lamb and they would give God and they would burn the fat on the altar. Tonight, I don't know if you walked in the kitchen, but I was like putting all the rendered fat into that meat that we cooked. There was a two-liter jug of fat. And without that fat, the flavor wouldn't have been there. The food would not have been as pleasing. Now that grosses some of you guys completely out. And if you saw it, it looked like jello. Don't make me thirsty. But but this this fat is pleasing to God. This aroma is pleasing to God. It shows our devotion to Him when we live a life that pleases Him. Let's put it in language or an idea that you understand. I love my wife. So as a result, I naturally do things that please her. Or at least in my best intentions, I should do things that please her. I should try to make her happy. I should try to show her love. I should do what honors her. And yet in my sinfulness, I always tend to do it halfway. She wants to watch a movie, but I don't want to watch the movie she wants to watch. She, I say, hey, let's go out to eat, but I'm not really feeling the two places you suggested. I, I want to get you a gift to show you how much I love you, but the real thing I want to get is kind of expensive, so I'm going to just like kind of dial it back a little bit. Hope you like this, right? Maybe I'm the worst one. Y'all aren't bad like this. But, but how often have we treated God in a similar fashion? We stop short of godliness, and we hope that He accepts or is pleased by our goodness. We say, well, godliness is pretty costly, so I'm just going to be really good. I'm going to be nice. I'm going to be kind. I'm going to be generous. I'm going to be serving. I hope that's enough, God. Are you appeased now? We stop short of godliness when we say, I'm just going to use my godly gifts. 
But I've shown you, I can manipulate preaching into a place to just provide me affirmation. You can manipulate hosting. Maybe you have this gift of hospitality. But you can manipulate it into, well, I am known by everybody in town to have the best recipes, to have the best house, to be the best host. I've even had people in our churches before who they write a check to the church and say, here, use this as a scholarship for a, for a camp or for a retreat. And then they call me two weeks later mad. Why? Because they didn't get a thank you note. They didn't get the affirmation. They didn't get the applause. They didn't get the credit for what they had done. Because we miss it. We stop short of godliness when we just choose to be religious. That was the Pharisees' problem. They just wanted to do all these things to to honor themselves. But David in Psalm 51 knew this. In Old Testament days, right after his... Uh, falling of with Bathsheba, what does he say? Uh, you don't want just tons and tons of oil or tons and tons of sacrifices. You want a broken and contrite heart. You want devotion to you first and foremost that leads to a life that is pleasing to you. Action without devotion is not godliness. That's religion. And how many of us have settled for religion rather than godliness. So I ask you that question again. Do you want to be great or do you want to be godly? It's not easy to answer. You can nod with me right now and go, yeah, yeah, I mean, you know what I want. But are you willing to accept the ramifications? Are your parents willing to accept the ramifications when you choose godliness and not greatness. So this semester's been really humbling to me. Okay? So we started off with, if you're a freshman, you did virtual orientation. I wasn't standing outside of Duncan handing you a card. Okay? Last year we gave out 1,500 cards over the summer. This summer, we didn't get to go to Impact. I, if you're a freshman, we didn't get to meet you at Latham Springs and have our awesome table and tell you about our church and, you know, all of that good stuff. This year, we didn't have any Howdy Week events. Howdy Week was a ghost town if you were on campus. This year has uh, been difficult because I really worried, how are we going to meet any new students? How are we going to do anything? How are we going to connect? On top of all of that, I stepped away from leading freshman small group and so did my wife. How are we going to know freshmen? How are we going to get connected? If we're not there, is it going to work? Greatness told me, Jordan, they need you on Wednesday night. You have to be there. Greatness said, you're so great at connecting at impact. If they don't have it, well, you're not going to see any freshmen. Greatness told me that if we don't do Howdy Week events, how are we ever going to meet students? Greatness told me that, well, we gave out 1,500 cards last year and you've given out zero this year. The odds of you having students be a part is pretty low. And I wanted to believe these things from greatness so much. 
But I've been trying to believe what God is calling me to do, to trust our leaders, to trust our students, to believe that he has something in store, even in the midst of the chaos of this. And what's so fun is I look out in this room and there's probably 40 people that we didn't know before August that are a part of this retreat with us. God has been faithful if we have been trusting him. I remember I was sharing this with some of our deacons. I was talking about how great our small groups were going. And I was like, oh, yeah, and I'm not there this year, but it's going really well. And it, it was that kind of like Michael Scott and his boss, David Wallace conversation. <laughs> right. Like like he's going, oh, wow, they get so much done without me. And then he catches himself. He's like, no, no, no. They get less done. No, no, no. They don't get less done. Like, they get the exact same amount of stuff done whether I'm here or not. Yeah. <laughs> and then I looked at the deacons and they're like, so then why are we paying you, right? Like, it was, it's been a humbling semester. But it's been a semester that's been a reminder that it's not about how great I can be, but how great God is and how faithful He is to do things that. If I was a part of it, it wouldn't have gone as well. It's been humbling because I want to get the recognition. And instead, now I am learning to celebrate with Sydney and Allison and Hannah and Ashley, with Hayden and Brady about the stories. I'm getting to celebrate with Lacey or Maddie about the girls that are getting connected that we didn't even know and how lives are being changed. I'm getting to celebrate even with uh, Mia where our whole idea of missions has changed And now it's going so much better than we could ever imagine. It's not because of me. But now I get a front row seat of what God is doing. I have to ask myself all the time, who do I trust, myself or the God who wants to orchestrate great things for His glory? So, I have a checklist. I didn't put it on the screen. Sorry. It's been a crazy day. But here it is. Checklist for you to just ask yourself. Some are questions, some are statements, because I'm not real good at being parallel and everything. So, the first thing. I need you to answer this honestly. Do you desire the glory of man or the glory of God? John 12:43. For they desire the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. How do you answer that question? Because if I am still bowing down to the God of affirmation, I'm going to turn back to old ways, turning tricks for attention, approval, and affirmation every single day. The second thing, do you actually desire God? We first have to understand that, okay, I desire the glory that comes from God first. Now, I have to be honest, if godliness is devotion that lives a pleasing life, do I actually desire God? Psalm 42, 1 and 2. As a deer pants for flowing Stream, so my soul pants for you, O oh God. Do you resonate with that at all? There's many days I don't. There's many days I live my life in ungodliness, with little or no thought. But hear the psalmist. My soul thirsts for God, verse 2, for the living God. 
When shall I come and appear before God? We learn in the rest of that song, he's experiencing difficulty, but difficulty does not deter him from devotion. I wish it was the same for me. Do you pant? Do you thirst? Do you long for his word and his wisdom, for his feeling, for his satisfaction? Third, so do you love the glory that comes from man or God? Do you actually love God? Third, will you surrender your life to him? 1 Corinthians 10, 31, it's a verse many of you have heard. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Great. We like that verse. We miss the context. Paul has got a problem because the people don't know whether they should eat or not this food that's sacrificed to idols. Paul says, hey, I mean, like, honestly, you can eat it. It's fine. But I know some of you, your consciences won't allow it. Some of you, you go, no, 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 that, that I can't handle that because... It's going to that God. And he's like, well, that God doesn't exist. But they say, well, I'm still struggling with that. So Paul shares his opinion, but then he gives a mandate that's more important. Here's his mandate. I don't care what you do. Eat or drink. Don't drink or don't eat. I don't care. Here's what I care. Do everything that you do for the glory of God. So students, I don't really care what you major in? I'll ask you because it's a good conversation filler. <laughs> I don't really care which job you take. Can you be a doctor? Yes. Can you make a million dollars? Yes. Can you become famous somehow? Yes. My question is not can you do those things. The what's are fine. The why is what I care about. Why do you want to make a million dollars? Why do you want to become a doctor? Why do you want that fame and glory? Why do you want that prestigious job? Why do you want to uh, marry that person? Why do you want what you want? It's a question we asked last night. Those things aren't inherently bad. We need doctors, especially Christian doctors. We need dentists and vets, I think. We need... Engineers, we're not really sure what any of them do, right? <laughs> like, I was an engineer for a year. I don't really know. They study science. They're good at math. And then they go work a job that they try to explain, and we just glaze over. <laughs> but they make good money, so, like, that's me. I think that's a real reason. But, uh, so... I don't really care what you do. What I care about is, are you doing it for the glory of God? Are you doing it for His glory and for the world's good? That's what we forget. Final thing on the checklist. We're still doing that, so we're going to keep going. Is this. This is the statement one, not a question. Godliness requires training. My perfectionist in this room, listen to me. You hate this part of it. Okay? You want it to happen like that. I'm choosing godliness, not greatness. Why am I not godly yet? I, I, I want to be done with this. I want to stop dealing with that. I want to stop worrying about this. I want to stop fighting this sin. 
I should be perfect. There's a little theological word called sanctification that you need to learn to accept and embrace. I hope that your rate is fast, but I hope that first and foremost you understand that you have a growth period that you have to experience. You're not just going to be godly now because you wrote it in your journal at Fall Retreat. It's going to require training. 1 Timothy 4, 7, and 8. This is Paul writing to his disciple. So my disciples in this room, I hope you're coming up with stuff like this. All right, Inspired words of God that are going to be canonized 2,000 years from now that you can then share. Okay, That's the pressure you have. Jacob, I do this each week with you on Thursday afternoon, right? So, yeah. No. You're not writing it all down? No. Have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Why? For bodily training is of some value, but godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise both for the present life and also the life to come. Paul is saying to a pastor who he has trusted in Timothy, who he knows knows the gospel, who he knows understands the word of God to be uh, the truth, and the it's living and active and breathing. He's saying, you need to train yourself in godliness. This matters. We're going to end with one more text. Philippians 3, you need to turn there if you got your Bible. This is a passage you need to have highlighted, you need to understand. Some of you might even put it on your body somewhere. <laughs> Philippians 3. Paul ends verse 3 with put no confidence in the flesh. Put no confidence in your greatness. Put no confidence in how awesome you are. Put no confidence in your fortune, your fame, your freedom. What does he say? Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. He's saying, I don't put my confidence in it, but if I did, I'm better than you at it. And then he starts showing his resume. He says, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. You think you're great? I'm greater. What does he say? I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, how passionate am I for God? I was killing these blasphemers that were in the church. That's what he's saying right there. (laughs) As to righteousness, how good am I? Under the law, blameless. You think you're great? You ain't got nothing on me is what Paul is saying. But hear him throw aside his greatness for godliness. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Because his devotion to God is more important and is leading now to a life that is pleasing to God. He doesn't have to earn it all. He doesn't have to flex what he's done. No, I count all that as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Christ. Indeed, verse 8, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, 
my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things. Counted, and I'm going to put a Jesus, I mean a Jordan thing in here. I've counted my greatness as rubbish. My, my, my perfection that I show everybody else. My GPA, my bank account, my major, I've counted as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul is saying, my greatness is not great enough, but my Christ is more than enough. But do we believe that? Verse 9, and be found in Him having... Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He's saying what we read in Ephesians 2. I'm not trusting in myself. I'm not believing that I can save myself, but only what God has done by grace through faith I am saved. This is not a work that I may boast in but a work that I just look at my Savior in thankfulness. And then verse 10 starts with that I may know Him. This week I was introduced to the Amplified Bible Translation. You can find it on Bible Gateway, probably in the version. What it does is it kind of like just gives us some extra phrases to understand what the point that's being trying to be made. And this is what it says, that I might know Christ, that I might grow with Him more deeply. That I'll experience Him. That I will become more thoroughly acquainted with Him. That I might understand the remarkable wonders of His person more completely. That's the knowledge of Christ. So I want to end with an analogy. Back in the day, hopefully you're not too young to understand this. Back in the day, you could go to a store and you could give them this like rectangle. It was called a check. You carried like 30 of them in a book. And you would give them whatever amount of money you wanted on this check. So the cashier would ring you up and you could just write a check and it became what you wanted. You could buy cars and houses and televisions and groceries with these checks. But there's a scary thing that happens when you lose your checkbook because a blank check floating out there can be very powerful. I thought about, but I don't have checks anymore. Just like having a blank check, and I would probably pick like a nice person in here and giving it to them and saying, here's a blank check. You can have whatever you want. The nice person probably takes five, maybe $50 because of peer pressure. Davis in the back tries to like write 5,000 on it, just hoping. Any store in the mall, you can go and just spend it. GameStop can get all of my money for you. But, but he, you would give this check. And if I gave you a blank check, you could just write it for whatever you thought I had my, in my account so it could all be yours. When we choose godliness over greatness. What we are saying is, God, we are giving you our whole life. 
everything we are, everything we have. And essentially, we're giving you a blank check. Spend us how you desire. Spend me in a way that pleases you. And the only reason that we are willing to give a blank check to God is because He has already written a blank check for us. A check that has covered every bit of my sin. Every bit of what I deserve. Everything that I have done wrong, He said, no, it is covered. There's no limit to the love that I have for you. And so we, if we're willing, put a blank check on the table. And here's the scary thing. Just like losing your checkbook at a random store terrifies everybody. When we give God a blank check, here's what we fear. It may change your major. It may change your relationship status. It may change the country of your residence. It may change what you're going to do with your life. It may change what job you take. It may change what goals you have, what dreams you have. It may cause you to be uncomfortable. It may cause you not to experience everything that you had in your 10-year plan. But the blank check out of devotion for God says, I am willing to give you my whole life, to surrender all of me. And honestly, it's to a person that we should trust we trust him as our savior why can't we trust him as our lord to lead our life why do we have to take the reins why do we have to be in control so godliness devotion to god that leads to a life pleasing to him what does that practically look like It looks like the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. It looks like Jesus on his hands and feet washing the disciples' feet. It looks like stopping on the side of the road for the person that is beaten down and doing what we can to serve and to help and not just meeting a need immediately, but meeting all the needs that come as a result. What does it look like? It looks like loving our neighbor as ourself and loving our God with our whole heart, our whole mind, our whole soul, and our whole strength. What, what, does, what does devotion look like? It looks like good religion. But it's good religion that comes from a changed heart. It looks like a love for one who you trust. And you want to please. I'll end with this. First, not first. Colossians 1, 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And get this. Here's why Paul is praying for the church in Colossae. Okay, verse 10, hugely important. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work 
and increasing in the knowledge of God. What does godliness look like? Living in a manner that is worthy of what Christ has done for you. What does godliness look like? Living a life that is fully pleasing to God. What does godliness look like? Bearing fruit by how we live. And finally, growing in our knowledge because we love God. You guys, I hope to see and understand, even though I throw under the bus all the time, that I love my wife. Last night I was laying in bed and the thing that I just kept thinking is, I just miss Carla. That doesn't mean I don't want to be here, that I don't love being here, that it's not so much fun. It's the one of the weekends that are the most exciting for me all year. But that can, the both can be true, right? I can love being here and I can miss her. But how often do we just forget about God? Little or no thought. Little or no concern about Him or for Him. That's been challenging for me. Let me pray.